Welcome to Music History Monday for September 6th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Mozart in Prague. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the premiere on September 6th, 1791, 230 years ago today, of Wolfgang Mozart's final opera, La Clemenza di Tito, the Clemency or the Mercy of Titus, Kirschel 621. Commissioned by the Prague-based opera producer and impresario Domenico Guardasoni, circa 1731 to 1806. The opera received its premiere at Prague's Estates Theatre, where Mozart's Don Giovanni had been premiered as well in October of 1787. My friends, put a visit to Prague's Estates Theatre on your bucket list. It's the last surviving theatre in which Mozart himself performed. We will get into the particulars of La Clemenza di Tito in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. For the remainder of today's Music History Monday, we're going to explore the special relationship Mozart had with the audience in Prague and why he might have lived a long and fruitful life had he chosen to leave Vienna and relocate to Prague. The city of Prague is the historic capital of the region of Bohemia, and today the capital of the Czech Republic. Its beauty, history, and sheer magic, I know of no better word, are stunning. It is my experience that like Paris and Venice, Prague never fails to exceed expectations. Relatively untouched by World War II, physically at least, Prague did not have to be rebuilt after the war, as did so many other great cities of Europe. Historical background. In 1355, the King of Bohemia, Charles IV, 1316 to 1378, also known as Charles of Luxembourg and Good King Wenceslaus, was crowned Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Just like that, Prague became the capital of the Holy Roman Empire. It was Charles's desire that Prague become not just one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, but a center of art, science, and imperial prestige. He wanted Prague to be the principal city of the Holy Roman Empire. Quote, everything was built in a grandiose Gothic style and decorated with an independent art style called the Bohemian School. During the reign of Emperor Charles IV, the Czech lands were among the most powerful in Europe." Unquote. The imperial court required huge numbers of musicians, and over time, Prague became known for its schools of music, which consistently turned out some of the best musicians in Europe. Sadly, life in Bohemia took a brutal turn in 1618 when the Holy Roman Emperor Matthias 
still officially residing in Prague, revoked the so-called letter of majesty that had guaranteed freedom of religion in Bohemia. Protestant members of the Bohemian Diet revolted, making them a revolting diet, and they expressed their displeasure by throwing two imperial Austrian Habsburg counselors out the window of Prague's Horatini Castle on May 23, 1618. This protest was not conducive to bipartisan politics, and the Austrians reacted poorly. This so-called defenestration of Prague precipitated the Thirty Years' War, which eventually involved most of Europe. The Kingdom of Bohemia was a major loser in the war. At its conclusion in 1648, Prague was stripped of its status as a capital city, part of the punishment meted out by the Catholic Holy Roman Empire for Bohemia's Protestant apostasy. Vienna was made the empire's new capital, and Prague became a political backwater as its population waned and its prestige sank into the Vlatava River. However, political backwater or not, the musical infrastructure of Bohemia and its capital city of Prague was still in place. The famed music schools were still there, many of the best ones run by the Jesuits, and the Bohemian respect for music as a profession was, as well, still in place. In the economically miserable times following the Thirty Years' War, the training and export of musicians became a major industry in Bohemia, as Bohemian musicians, singers, and composers were increasingly in demand across Europe. They were known to work harder than the Italians, they played and sang better than the Germans, and they were much more cooperative than the French. When Charles Burney, the first great music historian, called Bohemia, quote, Europe's conservatory, unquote, around the year 1770, he was simply giving voice to something that had been common knowledge for a hundred years, that the music schools, conservatories, and performance venues in Bohemia were among the very best in Europe, and that the number of really first-rate musicians to come out of that relatively small geographical area was nothing short of astonishing. What all of this means is that the population of Prague in the 18th century was almost certainly the most musically astute and forward-thinking in all of Europe at the time, which explains why that audience so loved, so adored, so appreciated the music and person of Wolfgang Mozart, 1756 to 1791. That love affair hit hyperdrive with the opera The Marriage of Figaro. The Marriage of Figaro, 1786. In his memoirs, the librettist Lorenzo de Ponte himself told how Figaro came about. Quote, In conversation with me one day, Mozart asked me whether I could easily make an opera from a comedy by Beaumarchais, The Marriage of Figaro. I liked the suggestion and promised to write one. But there was a very great difficulty to overcome. A few days previous, the Emperor Joseph II 
had forbidden Beaumarchais' play to be performed, which he said was too licentiously written and contained political overtones inappropriate to a self-respecting audience. How then to propose it to him for an opera? I proposed writing the words and the music secretly and then awaiting a favorable opportunity to show them to the director of the opera or the emperor himself, for which step I confidently assumed the responsibility. I set to work accordingly, and as fast as I wrote the words, Mozart set them to music. In six weeks, everything was in order. Mozart's lucky star ordained that the opera house was short of scores at just that moment. Seizing the opportunity, I went to offer Figaro to the emperor. What? he said. But, but this, the marriage of Figaro, I have just forbidden it to be performed. Yes, sire, I rejoined, but I was writing an opera and not a play. I had to omit many scenes and to cut others quite considerably. I have omitted or cut anything that might offend good taste or public decency. The music, I may add, seems to me marvelously beautiful. Good! If that be the case, I will rely on your good taste as to the music and on your wisdom as to the morality. Send the score to the copyist. I ran straight to Mozart, but I had not yet finished imparting the good news when a page of the emperors came and handed Mozart a note, wherein he was commanded to present himself at once at the palace, bringing his score. He obeyed the royal order, allowed the emperor to hear various selections, which pleased him immensely, or, to tell the truth, without exaggeration, astounded him." Unquote. Okay, granted literary license, de Ponti was, after all, a writer. This account is essentially accurate and incredible as it may seem, unbelievable really. Mozart did indeed write the bulk of the opera in six weeks, on spec, with no guarantee of even a single performance. Let us make no mistake about it. The Marriage of Figaro was new contemporary opera. Its dramatic scope, its harmonic language, the complexity and sheer length of its finales were unlike anything, and this is no exaggeration, anything that had ever been heard before. The cast knew early on in the rehearsals that they were part of something very special. The Irish tenor, Michael Kelly, who premiered the roles of both Don Basilio and the stuttering Don Curzio in The Marriage of Figaro, recalled, quote, I have seen The Marriage of Figaro performed at many times in other countries, and well, too, but no performance can possibly compare to our premiere. All the original performers have the advantage of working with Mozart, who transfused into our minds his inspired meaning. At the first full rehearsal, Mozart was on stage conducting the orchestra. In Figaro's aria, Non più andrai, Francesco Benucci sang with the greatest animation and power of voice. I was standing close to Mozart, who, under his breath, was repeating, Bravo, bravo, Benucci, 
And when Benucci came to the final passage, Cherubino, onwards to glorious military victory, which he gave out with stentorian lungs, the effect was electricity itself for all the performers on the stage and those in the orchestra, as if actuated by a single feeling of delight, cried out, Bravo! Bravo! Maestro Mozart! Bravo! Unquote. The Marriage of Figaro received its premiere at the Berg Theater in Vienna on May 1st, 1786. The initial public reaction to the opera is well described in the following review, which appeared in the Wiener Riedelzeitung on July 11th, 1786. Quote, The public did not actually know at the premiere what to think. Moreover, it is fair to say that the first performance, because of the fact that the composition is very difficult, was not of the best. Some newspaper writers have taken it upon themselves to relate that Mozart's opera was no success at all." Unquote. There's a great and unfortunate irony here. With the hindsight of history, we can see that even at this moment of signal artistic triumph, Mozart's star in Vienna had begun its descent. By 1786, the popularity of his subscription concerts, for which he had composed his piano concerti, had almost completely fizzled out. And while every honest music lover recognized the genius of the marriage of Figaro, many members of the Viennese aristocracy who had theretofore been among Mozart's staunchest supporters, were deeply offended by its portrayal of the ruling class. It probably never occurred to Mozart that by composing The Marriage of Figaro, he was, in fact, biting the aristocratic hand that fed him. In private, Mozart might have held the nobility in disdain, but he liked their money, and that money became increasingly less forthcoming after the Viennese production of The Marriage of Figaro. The Trip to Prague In early December of 1786, The Marriage of Figaro was presented in Prague at the Estates Theatre. The reception the Bohemians gave to Mozart and The Marriage of Figaro has become the stuff of legend their enthusiasm was beyond description. Franz Niemicek, 1766 to 1849, an early biographer of Mozart and a resident of Prague wrote, quote, all the connoisseurs and artists of our capital were Mozart's greatest admirers, the most passionate ambassadors of his fame. Figaro's tunes echoed through the streets and the parks. Even the harpist, on the alehouse bench had to play from Figaro if he wanted to attract any attention at all. In Prague, his, Mozart's, works were recognized and appreciated at their true value." Unquote. Yeah, Niemicek's implication here is that the Viennese did not properly appreciate Mozart's music and recognize its true value. And in this, he was correct. Lorenzo de Ponti was stunned by the popularity of Mozart's music in Prague. Quote, 
It's not easy to depict the enthusiasm of the Bohemians for Figaro. The numbers which are least admired in other countries are by this people considered divine, and the great beauties of the music were perfectly understood by the Bohemians at the first hearing." Unquote. The people of Prague embraced Mozart as one of their own. At the invitation of the city, he arrived there for a visit in January of 1787. There, with his own eyes and ears, he was witness to the Figaro craze. Mozart wrote to his friend, Niklaus von Jacken, quote, I look on with the greatest pleasure while all these people flew about in sheer delight to the music of my Figaro arranged for dance bands. For here they talk about nothing but Figaro. Nothing is played, sung, or whistled but Figaro. No opera is drawing like Figaro. Nothing, nothing but Figaro. Certainly a great honor for me." Unquote. More than just honor, there was a commission. When Mozart and his wife Constanze left Prague on February 8, 1787, they took with them a contract from Pasquale Bondini, the director of Prague's Estates Theatre, for a new opera to be produced that fall of 1787. Mozart immediately hired Lorenzo de Ponti to write the libretto for this new opera, and the two quickly agreed upon Don Juan as a subject. When Mozart, his wife Constanze, and Lorenzo de Ponti traveled back to Prague in October 1787 to oversee the production of Don Giovanni, the opera was still incomplete. With opening night just three weeks away, Mozart had yet to compose major chunks of the opera, including the entire second act finale and the overture. The evidence of Mozart's last minute work lies in the paper, the music paper, on which he wrote much of Don Giovanni, paper purchased there in Prague. According to the legend, Mozart composed the overture during the night before the final dress rehearsal. He was exhausted, had been drinking, probably champagne punch, his cocktail of choice, and kept dozing off. It was Constanze's job to keep him awake and composing. She was successful, as Mozart showed up the next morning with the completed overture in hand. If possible, Don Giovanni was an even bigger hit in Prague than The Marriage of Figaro. The following review appeared in the newspaper Prague Post on November 3, 1787, quote, On Monday, October 29th, the Italian Opera Company gave the ardently awaited opera by Maestro Mozart, Don Giovanni. Connoisseurs and musicians say that Prague has never yet heard the like. Herr Mozart conducted in person. When he entered the orchestra pit, he was received with threefold cheers, which again happened when he left it. Everybody on the stage and in the orchestra strained every nerve to thank Mozart by rewarding him with a good performance. The unusually large attendance testified to unanimous approbation." Unquote. Well, this is really nice to hear, because back home in Vienna, when Don Giovanni was first performed in May of 1788, it was panned. 
the Countess de la Lippe found, quote, the music learned, but little suited to the voice, unquote. One critic opined, quote, the beauty, greatness, and nobility of the music for Don Giovanni will never appeal anywhere to more than a handful of the musical elite. It is not music to everyone's taste, merely tickling the ear and letting the heart starve." Unquote. Another critic complained, quote, In Don Giovanni, pedants and pettifoggers may go on measuring bar by bar the progressions of notes and the harmonies necessarily resulting therefrom. The music is overly learned and artificial, whim, caprice, pride, but not the heart created Don Giovanni." Unquote. After hearing Don Giovanni, Emperor Joseph II told Lorenzo de Ponte that, quote, it is not meant for the teeth of my Viennese, unquote. When de Ponte told Mozart what the emperor had said, Mozart quietly replied, quote, give them time to chew on it. Unquote. Amazing, no? Mozart's music, music that today we consider the last word in beauty, clarity, elegance, and accessibility, was considered by so many of his learned Viennese contemporaries to be too long, too complicated, too elite. Music that could only appeal to the connoisseur and that was inaccessible to the average listener, not meant for the teeth of my Viennese. What if? Over the years, many good and well-informed people have suggested that had Mozart moved permanently to Prague, he might never have experienced the stress that likely caused the relapse of rheumatic fever that killed him. That had he moved to Prague, he would have enjoyed the fame and fortune he so richly deserved and perhaps would have lived a long life. Certainly, the great Joseph Haydn, 1732 to 1809, felt this way. In December of 1787, not long after the premiere of Don Giovanni, Haydn wrote Franz Rott, an influential Bohemian music lover, quote, Prague should hold fast to the precious man and should reward him too. For without this, the history of great geniuses is sad indeed and gives but little encouragement to posterity for further exertions. And unfortunately, this is why so many promising talents fall by the wayside. It enrages me to think that this incomparable Mozart is not yet engaged by some imperial or royal court." Unquote. Sadly, for all the hoo-ha over Prague, Mozart himself was not interested in resettling there. After having lived, worked, and succeeded in Vienna since 1781, Prague seemed to Mozart hopelessly provincial, too small a place for a composer of his ambition. So Mozart remained in Vienna, where he died on December 5, 1791, at the age of 35. When we return tomorrow, in Dr. Bob Prescribes, it will be with Mozart's final commission from and triumph in 
the city of Prague. His opera seria, La Clemenza di Tito. Until then, thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.